Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. We are brought to you today by our patrons at Patreon, who generously make this work possible. If you'd like to contribute to the work that we're doing, you can go to patreon.com slash reimaginingfaith for more information. Today, we are joined by pastor, author, and activist Johnny Rashid. Johnny is one of the pastors of Circle of Hope in Philadelphia and someone that we've respected for a long time. His first book, Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel, is out now wherever books are sold. It is a deeply challenging and important book which calls out the inherent oppression of third-way thinking and compels Christians to join Jesus on the side of the marginalized. We'll be leading Open Table UCC in a book study based on it sometime this summer, so stay tuned for that. And now, without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Johnny Rashid. Well, we're so excited to have you here, Johnny. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us about this book. We've both read this book, and um, we we both hate it. And um, Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> No one Five Iron Frenzy would play a set, they'd say, here's a new song, I hope you hate it. That's how they'd say. Five Iron Frenzy, by the way, I saw in one of your tweets uh, about uh, like a prophetic bit of, of lyrics from a Five Iron Frenzy song, and I thought, no. And I looked it up, and speaking of taking a side... That new album of theirs... Yeah, they have not softened like, in their old age. You know, no. when I was a kid, they'd say, well, you're a leftist now, but when you're older, you'll be more conservative. They, Five Iron got, like, more radical. Yes. Yes, they did. And I feel like uh, a lot of folks who grew up in the evangelical world uh, are kind of coming to that same place. Hmm. Right? Totally. It, and so it's strange to see people like that or people like uh, Joshua Harris is now at the at the forefront of the deconstruction movement. And oh yeah, he's a deconstruction consultant. Oh yes, well he's getting paid for it now <laughs> yeah. to yeah, undo right. the harm he did as a young man. Deconstruct your faith. <laughs> you know, thank you, Dave Bazan will do that for me for free. Thank you, Josh Harris. <laughs> yeah. Dave All Bazan's right. been doing that for uh, back before it was cool, right? Can I just say this about Five Iron Frenzy? Please. They kept my faith in high school. I swear, like. Hmm. Because my transformation started happening around 9-11. The mm. towers fell, war on terror happened. Um, I don't have fond memories of George Bush. I get very upset when, like, there are attempts to exonerate the man. It mm. feels personal because I felt the prejudice during that time in my body. I remember the kids saying names and calling me things. You look like bin Laden. Do you live in a pyramid? You're a terrorist, etc., etc. Um and so the hostility was there, right? Um, and it was among Christians too, like the, the jingoism, the 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 war drums were really beaten by Christians. And I didn't know that I could be a Christian and oppose the war on terror. But and mm -hmm. I and I mean this, Five Iron helped me. Really, you know, they're critical of capitalism, critical of the genocide of the American Indians, and so on, and. Yeah, give me a real chance, you know? And and because they, it was like... During that 1999 time. 1999 is when, 
when Columbine happened, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm. Yep. And so 20 years later, they're singing this song about the gun lobby. And that's the prophetic thing that I was saying, you know. You want your ledgers back. We want our children back. Ugh. Which is just yeah. devastating. It's horrifying. Like, and I'm listening to it right after Uvalde, right? Yeah. This, for those at home, is, uh, if you're not familiar, Five Iron Frenzy is a Christian ska band <laughs> that was real popular in the late 90s among a certain subset of evangelical teenagers <laughs> like myself and um, probably outside of the evangelical world. But that was like the safe music we were allowed to listen to that was just just edgy enough, but not quite. Mm-hmm. And they, they sang some silly songs about Canada in there. and uh, Totally. Sl- they're goofballs as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'm actually glad we're starting this conversation uh, in this way, Johnny, because the thing that I found maybe most compelling about your writing is that you, stare, you, you share directly from your story, directly from your body, directly from the ways that the things you were writing about actually impact you. So it's not this like, ideological thing that is, you know, you're talking about somebody else's experience. Like you were, you spoke so vulnerably in sharing your own story and showing how um, this impacted you personally. And, you know, you, you can argue with theological concepts, you can argue with ideologies, you cannot Mm -hmm. argue someone's experience. And so I guess I, I wanted to start a little bit by asking you what that was like for you um, and, and, and why you did it that way. It's easy to abstract political discussions and theological discussions. It's safer for me to do that too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think for white, cis, temporary, able-bodied men, um, my friend taught me that word, who's disabled. We're temporarily abled. Able because yeah. we'll eventually become disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to abstract politics. For people of color, it's easier, it's less painful to abstract politics. But when you see Derek Chauvin put his knee on George Floyd for nearly nine minutes in front of you, mm-hmm. like that, dem- that demands action. Yeah. This isn't abstract. Something is wrong. When we see the 19 kids and two adults get killed and fourth graders, that demand, that, that, that demands action, right? And like, I appreciate what you said, Nicole, you can't argue someone's personal experience. The sad truth is that you can, and Mm -hmm. it is devastating. Like I've shared my story with people. This is why I act the way that I do. This is why these are my politics. It's about me. It's personal. It's about my body. And sometimes they've said, I don't believe you. Because our prejudice is also embodied. Yeah. You know, white politics, and I I, I don't think I say that in the book, but um, the politics of the powerful is embodied insofar as it is designed to protect their power. Um, so if challenges to that result in a visceral reaction, for me, 2017, January, the first thing Donald Trump did was 
institute a Muslim ban. You know, and I remember feeling like, can I curse on this? Go for it. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling like, like, holy shit, he did this. Yeah. I know he said he would. I shouldn't be surprised. I can't believe how fast it happened. Because normally we think these things take time. There's legislation. There's debates. There's, it's slow. It was an executive order, and it just happened. Eventually struck down. But there was kids behind Gates and PHL, O'Hare, other places. We're doing a love feast, the quarterly gathering of the church, where we welcome in members and participate in communion. Love feast is the term that Anabaptists call when we gather for communion, and other traditions also call it, right? Jude mentions love feast. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is really talking about a love feast, right? Mm -hmm. Your rich come drunk to the love feast. They eat all the food before the workers in the field can come. Do you just despise those who have nothing? That's his... That's what he says before he offers the words of institution. We should read the whole thing, by mm. the way. Um, so, it was, so I needed the cross to reconcile, to save me. I needed Jesus on my side. I needed, the, I needed the cross to not be abstract. It can't be. It has to be physical. This is why we even take communion, right? It's a physical thing. It's material. It matters. Christianity needs to be more materialistic. In other words, it needs to be more concerned with matters, the matter of the world. The cross is very um, material. Jesus incarnate, flesh, blood, dying, right? God didn't just forgive us or something abstractly. Something happened. Yeah. And that's really how my politics is formed. It needs to have, our faith needs to have a material impact. And those of us that feel oppression specifically feel that material impact in our bodies. It takes consciousness. I didn't always feel it. You yeah. have to become aware of your pain. So don't tokenize people of color. Don't tokenize queer folks and say, hey, look, this guy is fine with, with uh how things are working. This person's fine with the status quo. There are people like that, and they're like that for their own survival. But when you get in touch with your own oppression, something changes. There's no rush to do that. There's no, you can't force someone to do that. You can understand why they wouldn't. But when you get in touch with your own pain, that changes how you act. Hmm. You talk a lot in this book about um, the, the fallacy of third way thinking. And I think that's a, that's a phrase that those who have spent time in the Anabaptist world understand viscerally. It's something we've talked a lot about, Jesus mm -hmm. finding that third way. Um, but those maybe outside of that tradition mm -hmm. might be a little less familiar with that terminology. Can you, can you open that up a little bit for us? I don't talk about this extensively in the book, but Walter Wink will offer us third way when it comes to fight or flight, and he's offering us a creative solution if those are our options. I actually quite like that image. Mm. Um, in my opinion, Martin Luther King practiced the third way in his nonviolent resistance. That is a third way. It is, it is an, an alternative to an armed response. Mm. You know, in the Cold War between communist and capitalist warring parties, there's a different way to do this. The third way only works if your idea is so countercultural 
that it threatens the very political order of the world. So when we get later on into Brueggemann's counterconsciousness, we're talking about a third way. But the term third way has lost its meaning because it really now often just means, well, it's a way to not polarize us hmm. uh, between Republican and Democrat, right? It's a way to find a moderate path. Um, I don't think Jesus did that, even if Jesus came up with alternative ways of doing things. <laughs> right. I think that he wasn't a moderate. And the most, so that's what the third way means. And, and what it does is it relieves anxiety that people have from making political commitments. Hmm. And, and it is weaponized during, you know, the Trump administration, for lack of, for, for a very specific case, you know. There was a chapter in the book that we had to cut about Charlottesville and very fine people on both sides, which is kind of like the idea of what I'm working with. Just couldn't fit, can't fit all the words. But when you're faced with abject white supremacy, there is no third way. You, the, the only side to take is the side of Christ against the white supremacy. There is no other way. So we, we have to keep tra keep tra getting transformed and changing it falls flat when we have like brian zahn was very excited to tell us about his politically pluralistic churches that had undocumented immigrants and ice agents like hey those two without repentance that communion table is dangerous mm -hmm. you know um the only reason the lion can lay next to the lamb is because the lion doesn't have an appetite to eat the lamb anymore Right. You know, defang yourself. So, like, white supremacists, you have room at the table. Just stop hating black people and wanting to kill them. <laughs> right? Like, that's right. that's the entrance. That's that's what it costs to be at the table of Christ. You know? Um, there's no communion that can happen between people who think it's okay for police to kill black people and then not people who think it's not okay for police to kill black people, but rather the victims of the police brutality. So not ideas about what cops should and shouldn't do. You have an idea about what cops can do, and it's fine. And then there are actual victims of that politics. The third way falls flat that way, right? And, and most – go ahead, Nicole. Well, I was just going to say, I think um, during a lot of reading this book, I've just kept saying guilty – guilty, guilty. I've done that. Like I I've tried mm -hmm. to find some kind of non-existent um, third way that has, has further victimized victims, um, that has further oppressed folks who are oppressed. And, and so I, the moderate way does feel appealing. Um, it, it feels appealing. Um, well, I want people to like me, but I also, you know, believe in a very generous... I like you, Nicole. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I like <laughs> you, too. Um, I, I want the gospel, you know, to preach the gospel in any way that it will fall. Um, but in reading your book and, and thinking about a lot of the things you've been writing, I realized that that's a false gospel. That's not just... Um, that's not being moderate. That is 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 taking a side with the oppressor, with the um, the ideologies that do oppress, that do further marginalize folks. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not like this. If this is not good news for folks, for people to take as a a uh, slow way to get to get to the gospel, like 
to the gospel message of Jesus that that liberates and that, you know, um, so I, I think, especially um, as pastors, you know, you you want to be able to love and care for everyone. Um, but in in doing and in, in trying to find that third way, you are taking a side and you're not really in a third way. Like, you, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know. It's, you're so good that you're conscious of the guilt that you feel hmm. when you read this, because I am too, you know. First, I played a part in Circle of Hope not taking a side when it came to LGBT affirmation. Like, I did that. I participated in that. I made the arguments. I had the conversations. Are you affirming or not? Let me take you out to coffee. You know, that <laughs> kind of thing that's like... It's going to take me an hour to say no to you. That's taking a side. Without you knowing you that know? no was the ans- actual answer. <laughs> yeah, it's a bait and switch. It's it's yeah. problematic. It's better to just make your yes a yes and say, no, this isn't for you. At least be honest. Mm-hmm. Save us a lot of time and grief and heartache. People yeah. developed connections in our community. They developed love relationships, and they found out they couldn't fully be a part because of how they were oriented, of their sexuality. So I feel guilty about that, but I also feel repentant. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to move into what's next. And I'm, I'll tell you this. How we approached it kept me in the closet mm. as mm. a bisexual man. Mm. Like, I didn't even read. Like, someone said, what did you learn when you, about yourself when you wrote this book? Well, that I was bi. I didn't say that in the book. But I realized the anxiety that I had and the passion that I had and the and wanting Circle of Hope to be affirming. You know, and I had that idea very early on. No, this doesn't, you know, gay marriage makes perfect sense to me. I don't see how it's not biblical. But I was just a little boy, 20, 21. I didn't know what I was doing. Then I became a pastor. So then you walk the party line. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, that's, there's no dignity. There's no, there's no integrity in that. Um, it's just what I thought I had to do. Um, and I did it for too long and hurt too many people. And, I have to repent of that. You know, the difference, you know, and some people say, oh, we have thought police that tell us how to think. We have cancel culture that's trying to cancel us. Like some people take that guilt, Nicole, and say that's cancel culture. Mm. No, you could just admit you're wrong too. <laughs> right. That's like an option. <laughs> it doesn't, you don't have to fight tooth and nail just to be right. You know, there's like the antidote to cancel culture is humility. It's mm-hmm. very surprising that we have to say that. But you could just say, oh, yeah, I caused harm. Nothing's going to happen to me. I've been forgiven by the grace of God. None of us are standing here because of what we've accomplished. You know, no condemnation in Christ means freedom to repent. So we have to do that work. And that's what intersectionality is. So even though I, 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 I was a victim and a perpetrator of my own oppression Hmm. so like even within my body i was both so i think the third way does kind of tear you apart yeah that chapter where you told the story about circle of hope's journey through its relationship with lgbtq people um was incredible i i could not did you you lived through that zach uh that's actually one of the reasons i left um yeah so you experienced that at my at now I was a member of of Circle for for quite some time, and in my own personal faith journey, 
um, came around to this uh, open and and affirming position as I mm-hmm. as I grew, and I came to a point where I, I thought, well, my brother-in-law is gay, and if one day he wants to get married, and uh, he would want me to do the service, uh, if I'm a if I'm a pastor of this church, could I do it? Yes, and and I couldn't get an answer out of anyone. The answer was always, um, well sexuality is not binary and so even talking about same-sex relations is is uh whatever and we don't our positions we don't have a position and i got nothing but run around and i realized the answer is probably no and i don't think i can i don't think i can be a part of this then and then in reading your book and finding that you all changed your position on this the month after i left <laughs> It was literally the next month was when I started in the United Church of Christ. That's when we started moving. Yeah. yeah. So I was the problem is what, what it was. But, but it was so beautiful <laughs> to read that, right? Like it you, was. You, like we, I didn't even know until I read your book that that had happened. Yeah. And so um, we're all on a journey trying to figure it out. And as it happens, like, so, like I, I celebrated. I, I think I cried when I was reading it because it was... You know, even, you know, we're in the United Church of Christ, which, you know, kind of touts itself as this very progressive denomination that um, (laughs) we're kind of known for being um, open and affirming. um, But we're not like that's not a universal trait. Right. Like that's, you know, there there are anyway, um, there are like in this region, there are not very many open and affirming UCC churches. And so um, even as a past, as a local pastor, like I found myself struggling, like how, I'm, I'm tiptoeing around this. Like I'm not saying out loud what my convictions are. I'm holding them back for fear that I'm going to scare people away. I don't know what it was. I, you know, I, I think, I know I do know what it is. I, I wanted to, to people please. I wanted to, you know, have people like me and to be able to listen to me. And I was afraid, so afraid of that rejection um, personally, but also that in rejecting me, they might reject the message. Um, so thank you for your honesty. That, that, that was the honesty that I, I felt most compelled by how, yeah. how openly you shared um, the journey of, of Circle. And I, thank you. Well, that's the personal that. story. Yeah. You know, if you want to know why the third way doesn't work, that's it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, leaving a church because they're not affirming is a brave thing to do. You left relationships, familial connections, sibling connections, love. It is hard to leave. Bravo to everybody who stayed and came out, and bravo to those who left. It takes a lot of courage to do both. It is very hard to turn your back on family when you're following Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't have an issue with it, particularly. I mean, if you read the Gospels, the guy is not uh, very warm and fuzzy about his parents and siblings, really. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not. Like, Like, that's just not, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't be nice to them, but like, I wouldn't say Jesus is, reading the Gospels is how, how you do that exactly, you know? <laughs> I mean, they all left their things to follow him. They said, I'm turning brother against brother, sister against sister. If you, if you, 
if you don't, if basically, if, you, if, if, if following me doesn't cause a disruption in your family, you're not doing it right. It needs to. So Jesus is challenging all sorts of institutions that we have, but church can be family too. Mm-hmm. And turning and, and circle of hope especially is like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, it's all so about it's relationships. Hard, it's all about. It's hard to do that. So bravo. Also, mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that it felt inspiring, and I'm sorry that it didn't happen soon enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't suffer endless guilt for it, but I I do repent of it. Um. Well, and we didn't fight for it either, right? Yeah. So, right. Um, when you are in a community of faith, it's not just the pastors who are responsible for that. So, we take we take responsibility too. Exactly. And I, I, one of the things that I felt very convicted in reading your book, I started reading your book while I was still the pastor of um, a very uh, politically purple church. And that was something that I was very proud of for a long time, that we were a community in which people could share their diverse beliefs and have and still be loved and accepted, an open place where we could communicate with each other. And in reading your book, I realized that that is not necessarily a virtue. And I felt extremely convicted by that fact. Um, you wrote a, a wonderful blog post about this too. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the that sort of fallacy that purple churches are the best churches. In our... Well, I mean, let's just talk about the way of the world. Um, we like when politics don't interrupt dinner conversations. We think that's polite. That is how we're conditioned, you know. We want things to be bipartisan, you know. Like, Joe Biden has terminal Senate brain, where, like, he calls things bipartisan, this bipartisan bill that one Republican voted for. Like, come on. Like, now now we're talking about too much political strategy, but take the win. Call it yours, you know? But we have this condition to want everything to be bipartisan. Bipartisan is good. Bipartisanship maintains the status quo, is what I argue. But in our churches, our beliefs... If, if we can hold beliefs that are differing and it doesn't matter, then the beliefs don't matter. They don't mean anything. Because what material impact do they have, you know? Like, it's like saying, at my church, we have fans of the Beatles and fans of the Beach Boys, and they get along, and that's cool. Well, that's fine, because it doesn't really matter if you like the Beatles more or the Beach Boys more. And the Beatles are better than the Beach Boys, but Pet Sounds is better than anything the Beatles have made. So that's my opinion about that. Talk about a third way. (laughs) That was the third way there? (laughs) You found a way to make both of them good. (laughs) Well, there you go. You can do that when it comes to music. Yeah. You can't do that when it comes to people's dignity. Like, it doesn't doesn't make sense. Or their life. Exactly, their life. Or their life. Yeah. The best analogy I can draw to this is in the conflict that Paul has with Cephas. You mm-hmm. can't bring this opinion that Gentiles are less than in the church where we're trying to include Gentiles. There's no room for that here. Right. You're, you're going to divide the church when you do that. So people say, well, do you have to be perfect to worship? No. But you don't have to, but, but we're in repentance. We're following, this is what discipleship is. 
So if you're following Jesus, if you're approaching the communion table, if you um, are seeking to be discipled, then we're going to train you to be an, anti uh, an agent of anti-oppression. An agent that is hostile towards oppression, against death. You know, the forces of death can't be in our churches and we have to be expelling them. You know, Jesus, uh, and Jesus did the work to do that. Um, so, so in this political economy right now, the stakes of our politics are very high. I'm not saying that we can't have different philosophies about how to achieve common ends. If our goal is liberation, then we should welcome a marketplace of ideas about how to accomplish that. But if your goal isn't liberation, if your goal isn't to emancipate slavery, hmm. yeah. if there are people that want to keep people enslaved and people who want to free them, well, then no, we cannot get along. If we have a common goal, then there's a lot of ways we can approach it. You know, like if we have a new way to imagine how our communities are safe that don't involve police brutality, there's probably a lot of different approaches to how to make that happen. But let's agree that policing right now doesn't work. Too many people are dying. Let's agree that the populace has access to weapons that are too powerful that kill people. What are we going to do about that? There's a lot of solutions to gun control, you know. But let's agree on the end at least. But if you don't agree on the end of Christian discipleship, what are you doing in the same body? It doesn't mean. Then, yeah. like, what are you doing at all in church? What does is, what is worship mean? What does our lives mean? Like, what are we? It, it must not matter that much. It's There's another club. God we're serving if, if, if that's what's happening. It, it's a social club. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. If, if, if you have no real convictions, right? Like, we do things that we like together. Like <laughs> that's that. And I, and I was so appreciative of the way that you described how we're divided um, because it wasn't like we we just believe differently. It's the end goal that makes us divided. Not again, not an ideology. Like we're divided on what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. Like and. If we can own that rather than um, try and explain it away, we actually can do something about it. We can actually create a new way. Uh, a, a, Absolutely. A, yeah. One of the things that I, I found myself asking when I was reading your book is, who is this for? Um, because I think reading this book... I felt like it was for me. Um, I, I can say that. Um, I uh, felt very convicted, very compelled, very... Um, I don't know that I... Like, I think about the folks who I love deeply and care for and who have drastically different um, ideas than this, um, who maybe might even say, you know, white supremacy isn't a thing. Even privilege. Privilege is not a thing. Uh, you're making that up. Do you, is this book for those folks? Like, who, who did you write this for? This book is for people who feel convicted by God to do something about how the world is, but have apprehension, 
or anxiety or fear about making bold political commitments. If you already have bold political commitments and they just happen to be far-right ones, I'm not sure this book is going to convince you to change your mind. It might. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it won't. But I'm not writing it for people who are decided already. If you watch Tucker Carlson and listen to Sean Hannity and that's how you do and you feel good about that, I totally disagree with you. I'm trying to help mobilize a group of people against that idea because there's a lot of unlocked potential. There's a lot of locked potential that we can unlock in our movement. There's a lot of people that should be politically engaged and can be politically engaged that aren't. And there's a lot of Christians that know that stuff is icky. Mm -hmm. They see Trump defending People in Charlottesville, they don't like it. They see George Floyd getting killed. They don't like it. They see mass shootings. They see a deadly response to COVID-19. They see these things that have actual consequences. But then what do I do? How do I participate? Aren't I as bad as the the religious right if I participate politically? Well, no, you're not. Because it's not the same. These things aren't abstract. So it's for people like that. You know, that's at least my viewpoint. It's for people who are oppressed to, to feel like, hey, I can own my own dignity. I can be who I am. I can feel all my pain. And God has my back. Hmm. God is with me. Because, especially for queer folks, you know, being yourself and following Jesus are often in contradiction yeah. with how it's said. So this, I hope this book offers people dignity too. I know some of our listeners are pastors, and I, I bet a bunch of them are pastors of churches that have people in them who, like Nicole said, don't even think that white privilege is real and think that all of this <clears throat> is just liberal nonsense or whatever. And they're trying to pastor these churches. Uh, they're trying to love these people into realizing that what is at stake? Um, how can they do that? <clears throat> In, in in those contexts. Or can you? Yeah. I mean Or can you? I've told our people this. We need to center the voices of the marginalized in our communities. We need to hear them and listen to them, listen to their experiences and submit to them. We need to specialize in their liberation. That should be the thrust of our mission. But yeah, how do you get people on board with that that disagree? You have personal conversations. You try your best to not center their experience, but rather decenter them. And that's because that's part of the discipleship. You know, you're not the main voice here. I understand you disagree. I understand you have apprehension. Let's talk about it. There's a way for you here. You know, it can be gentle. It can be slow. If people aren't ready, that's okay. If they're actively causing harm, it's different than if they're just curious, wondering. They're not sure. There's no rush. But you can't lead us. You can't influence us. You're okay. You're still not there yet. And I think it's hard for white guys particularly to understand. What do you mean? Mm. Like, what, why aren't I ready enough? Um, so, center voices of color, specialize in their liberation, and don't center voices of people with power and then make that the conversation. Don't organize the conversations for the powerful. That kind of unity falls on the backs of people of color. And if you're in a predominantly white church and all marginalized people, but if you're in a church with a predom- that's predominantly white, predominantly uh, 
straight, etc., able-bodied. The minorities in your group, the marginalized in your group, feel it more. We feel the weight. And, you know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Lift the weight off of them. Help them out. It's hard to stay in. It's hard to be a follower of Jesus in this oppressive environment. Um, And honestly, you know, it's hard for me. You know, like, I don't know what to do. It's very discouraging. Um, So, I need permission to feel angry. Mm. I need permission. I need a discipline of anger, actually. Instead of internalizing it, I need to be able to express it. Um, But I also need a discipline of hope. I need the possibility for... Yeah, things can change. The whole world can turn upside down. So our people need that. Everybody can change. There's hope for everybody. The gospel doesn't exclude. Jesus taking a side doesn't mean that he, Jesus isn't on your side. Get on Jesus' side. Mm. Yeah, I, um, another time that I felt convicted by, by your words was uh, I... I've realized that I have spent a lot of my professional ministry, at least, essentially trying to be an anger translator hmm. of, of taking the anger <laughs> of oppressed people and translating it in such a way that comfortable white folks can, can hear, can handle, <laughs> can, here's, here's what they really mean when they're, screw, when they're yelling, defund the police. This is, this is what is really the, the thing happening here. And uh, you convicted me that what, what, I'm doing there is delegitimizing mm-hmm. the the actual anger and the pain that that is there and that is infantilizing even for people and not at all being a good ally. That was hard to hear. Or even but. suppressing our own anger. Like this should anger everyone. This shouldn't just anger the folks who this impacts. Like it impacts all of us. How how can if we truly believe that the beloved image of, of, of God is in each person, mm-hmm. how could that not anger us? Like Absolutely. And so even muting ourselves, like muting muting our own image of God. I, I think that anger, your your chapter on anger and hope, holding both of those things, um, feels like an impossible task. Uh, but one that has to be part of it, like has to be a part of the whole equation of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, not muting, not muting anger, not muting anything, mm-hmm. um, not muting conviction, not not muting the hope piece, I think is where <laughs> um, was hard for me, which I guess was surprising. Yeah, cynicism costs us nothing. <laughs> it's easy to be cynical. Um, and politics makes you cynical. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. If you're only doing politics in the world, it's rough. <laughs> it's not hopeful. Congress is not a fun place. So we need hope to transcend. But we also can't. Like when I feel my anger, when I feel my suffering, I'm being just as idealistic as when I feel my hope. Like I'm permitting myself to say, no, this is wrong. 
It doesn't have to be this way. Don't tell me it has to. Don't tell me it needs to be incremental. Don't tell me this is how a liberal democracy works. No, I am angry. These things can change. There's no reason why you can't pass legislation that changes who has guns. There's no reason. It's just a matter of your will. Hmm. You don't have the courage to do it. Um, So you're not feeling your anger enough to do it. And you're not feeling the hope enough to believe it's possible. So you have to hold those. They're together. Someone said, how do you hold on to your hope to me? And I said, I pay attention to all my suffering. That's how I hold on to hope. I feel the pain. And then I have to hope that, you know, tomorrow's another day. That we can keep doing it. The sun will rise. A lot of times Christians want to run to hope, run to Easter Sunday. <laughs> but don't run to Easter without living and without dying on Friday. You have to feel that weight. So the transcendence and the imminence of Christ is what we're holding on to, right? Jesus is here and present and suffering with us, familiar with suffering. You know, but also transcendent hope, risen savior, hmm. death defeater you know, liberator, redeemer, but also the one who suffers with me, who's oppressed, who feels my pain. Yeah. It's really important to hold those two. I I have that written down in my notes to to ask you about, that you wrote that uh, we need to be motivated by the transcendent in order to enact the imminent. And I was hoping you could unpack that a little bit, maybe even in what you mean by those words. Transcendent means like above our material reality. We're waiting for liberation. We know the promised land is coming. Mm -hmm. And because we know that, we can act right now to bring it. You know, Um, the pulse of the Jewish community, the Passover, is a reminder, hey, God liberated us. Mm. So we keep going through our captivity. We remember our captivity. We worship because we know that God will free us again. Mm. You remember, you recall. And communion is that way for us, too. Yeah. We were liberated from this. So now we can enter into it. We can change. You know, we can grow. If you believe that you're saved, then you can change and the world can change. If you think God is going to redeem the world. You know, this is why, I mean, I, 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 don't, I might talk about this a little bit, but like our, eschat- our eschatology informs our politics. So if God is going to change the world, then we can politically enact that now. We can bring God's will here on earth as it is in heaven. We can do that. We can participate in that. Um, Hmm. Our anthropology affects our politics. What we think about people, who they are, how God made them. You know, so, so these big ideas need to... I mean, it's beautiful to imagine things that we can't quite understand. The, the salvation, the age to come, how we're saved, that we're saved. But if you have this, this beautiful idea, but you don't practically engage in it in the world, well, what good is it? You know? Um, you can have the best ideas, but if you don't practically express that love in the present moment, well, then... It's a clanging symbol. It's a noisy gong, right? I mean, that's what Paul says, right? It has to actually have 
You know, it's a, it's a whitewashed tomb, like Jesus said, full of dead bones inside. Hmm. You know, don't just look the part. You got to do it. You know, you got to be about it, you know. Um, don't just look ritually pure. Be ritually pure. Right. You know, actually work that out. I find the resurrection to be a lot harder than the tomb. There was a, I remember a, a, a year when I was one of the, uh, the music leaders at the Broad and Washington congregation. And we realized that we've, we've got a lot of songs for Lent. And <laughs> we love going through the season of Lent. And uh, one year we said, you know, the season of Eastertide is 50 days. And Lent is 40 because it's supposed to be longer. We're supposed to be more in the resurrection than we are in the tomb. And so let's celebrate Eastertide this year. And we'll have Easter songs every week. We'll have resurrection songs. We'll have hopeful songs every week for five weeks. And we ran out. <laughs> <laughs> we just didn't have that many. We just were not practiced at uh, believing that any of this stuff is actually real and true and possible in this world, too. It is interesting because, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like we're doing, we're following the RCL right now. Do you guys do that? Yeah. The Revised yep. Common Lectionary. And so like I'll say, welcome to our Sunday meeting in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord on this sixth Sunday of Lent. So mm -hmm. like I count the Sundays for them. And there is seven Sundays after Easter. There's only six Sundays before it. So it is longer. Mm -hmm. Like that's really sweet that you said that, <laughs> that the season until Pentecost is longer than the season of Lent. That's a real sweet thing to remember. Um, yeah, I really love that. God's hope is longer than God's anger. Mm. You know, God's love endures forever. God's anger is temporary. Um, and so I think that's why you can feel your suffering and your anger, because that's temporary. Yeah, It's not going to last. Um, but hope is coming. Liberation is coming, and I, I think it's coming for everybody, no matter if they want it or not. <laughs> you know, like, I know now we're getting into some, like, soteriology, but at least I think so. Well, maybe we have time for one more, one more question. Um, I wanted to uh, talk a bit about the counter-consciousness that, that you talked about from uh, Walter Brueggemann and um, how we how can we create this? How can we go about the business of, of living into a counter-consciousness? Um, yeah. So let's, my book is really about encouraging people to practically engage politically. Mm -hmm. But our political economy has constraints on what we think is possible. Mm -hmm. Um, so how do you practice your idealism and your hope? Imagine the things that order our thinking. I think I named three in the book, whiteness, violence, and neoliberalism. <laughs> um, markets, the market economy, uh, violence, and whiteness. So when we extend beyond those, when we break apart the foregone conclusions, let's imagine what the world can be. You know, pay attention to what kids, like, pay attention to children. Mm. What they, because they're not as uh, hopeless as grown-ups. Like, we, we know this is how the world works. This is what happens. But children have an imagination. Mm. They have faith. 
They have possibilities. You know, teach your kids about Santa Claus because magic and hope is really important. Especially if you want to raise them as Christians, you're going to teach that they're eventually going to try to believe magical things. You know, things that are supernatural. So, like, don't tamp down the possibility that these fantastical ideas are, are, uh, are, uh, possible and real because we need to imagine new things, you know? Like, mm. we really set our kids up negatively when we talk about how these things aren't real and then we make our faith about, like, empiricism and evidence and, and then it falls apart once you go to a sociology class in your freshman year of college. Yeah. You know, fundamentalism is so, uh, fragile. Um, yeah. This is a long way to answer your question, but imagine, imagine impossible things. Because hmm. we have to do it. You know, if you live in a world where like the only solution is to fund, the only solution is to give as many weapons as we can to Ukraine as they fight Russia. Even if you practically understand that, imagine a world where peace is possible. You know, if you have to have armed police because the citizens, citizens are so armed, you have to imagine an alternative. It doesn't have to be that way, you know? And if we don't imagine an alternative, a counter-consciousness, a million and a half people are going to die because the seas are going to raise. Climate change is, a, is an existential threat that demands a new a counter-consciousness. We need to think about the world way differently than we are. If this is how it has to be, then, then the consequences will be deadly. And they are deadly. Like, it doesn't... With, with as much ingenuity and creativity and technology that we have, it is amazing how limited our political frameworks are. Like, mm-hmm. like, just so surprising. The things that we can do and the things we can't. Like, if Jeff Bezos can, can go into space because he has that much money, like, why aren't we doing more important things? Why isn't, where's the interest in that? Because we're ordered by the market. We're ordered by violence. We're ordered by these things. There's another way to do it. You know, God is alive. Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then we can do all sorts of things. Like, what, what, why do we submit to other things, you know? I remember after George Floyd got killed, I wrote, Jesus is Lord means we don't need police. Mm. I'm not saying we're going to abolish them tomorrow, but where's your faith? That's what Jesus said to them. Mm. You have little faith. Why did you let practicality get in the way? Why couldn't you walk on water? What do you mean? You're dwelling with me every day, you know? Let the little ones come to me. The ones with faith, the ones with possibility, the marginalized, the ones that need hope. And if you get in the way of any of them, it's better for a millstone to be hung around your neck and you thrown into the Sea of Galilee than the judgment that awaits you, you know? Like, he is really serious. Don't tamp down the faith of the marginalized and the little ones. Look to them. Be led by them. You know, don't get don't get your practicality in the way, but still engage practically as you can. <laughs> you know, that's the other side of it too. Like, you have to marry the two ideas. Mm. Like, the only way to bring about, like, you your counter consciousness informs your politics, and then you engage practically politically. Mm. But you don't have to, even as a civic duty. You're not. You don't. If the if things are very bad, you don't have to do it. Like, I wasn't going to vote for Bloomberg. 
over Trump. I can't just vote for billionaire oligarchs. My friends got so mad at me when I said that because, you know, that we were saying vote blue no matter who. What do you mean no matter who? It could matter. You know, like, I, bad things can happen still. So, like, I don't think political participation should even be compelled as a matter of civic responsibility. I don't go that far. But within reason, engage practically as you're informed prophetically in your counterconsciousness. You know, Christians should really specialize in bringing hope and another way of being to the world. That should be what we do. Yeah, and I don't hear from your writing you need to choose whether to be red or blue. Like I don't I don't hear that at all. I mean there there is a a, a camp that tends to answer the questions a bit more, but if the camp that you voted for is doing things that you disagree with that you need to fight back on, like it is your responsibility as much to vote for them, maybe even more to challenge mm-hmm. them, to say no. Like I voted for you and therefore I'm holding you accountable. I'm I'm you will not just get my approval because of your political affiliation. Totally. I hope people don't walk away from this and say Jesus just took the side of the Democratic Party. Right. Like I don't think that's true. I lamented voting for Joe Biden because I believed Tara Reid and the sexual assault allegations. He isn't you know and I, and I even say in the book the Democrats are not uh bastions of they're not moral leaders yeah you know when we are when we seem partisan it is just a matter of incidents we are incidentally partisan not not intentionally and so i th- i hope we can hold on to that yeah. our son just brought us the picture of sonic the hedgehog he's oh, on I the see. side Very of interesting. sonic the hedgehog you like sonic oh he ran upstairs already but yeah yeah, you know, I fan. will say this about Sonic since I'm commenting about everything. <laughs> Mario is clearly, the games are way better. But the character design of Sonic is unbeatable. Hmm. So you, you, you have a really good, see, look, y'all, I'm finding a middle road between the Beach Boys and the Beatles, <laughs> between Sonic and Mario. I can do it. I can do it. I just don't think you should do it with people's lives. <laughs> And that's the summary of the book right there. <laughs> that's right. Right? We said, yeah, you you can eat pineapple pizza. Mm. You know? I wouldn't. I like pineapple. <laughs> we can disagree about what to eat. But the point is we're eating. Yeah. Right. You know? Starvation and gluttony cannot be the two sides. No. Well, I find myself asking what's what side would Jesus take here instead of like what would Jesus do like do you remember those bracelets um mm-hmm. from like the 19 the late 1900s um that you know like is there a clear side here if there's a clear side that's what I want to be on um and Absolutely. so um it's almost become a mantra of sorts to to be asking myself this question and because that's the question I'm asking I am speaking a little bit more courageously. I am being quite a bit more bold than I would have. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. That question. Yeah. And thank you for taking the time to be Mm -hmm. with us today. Um, For all of you out there, the book is available online. It's available. Are we in bookstores? Yeah. Select bookstores. All the bookstores. Every single bookstore. Your bookstore will... Get it for you. If you oh, want yes. to go to your local bookstore, tell them to buy it. 
If you don't want to send Jeff Bezos to space, you don't have to go to Amazon. You can go <laughs> to your local bookstore. The book is called Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. Um, Johnny Rashid, thank you so much for being with us. So fun, Zach and Nicole. Really good. Yeah. And if people want to follow you more, um, how can they how can they do that? Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Johnny Rashid. You can follow me at Food Pasture if you want to know what I'm cooking. Um, and then johnnyrashid.com is my blog. And all that will be in the show notes below. And you do want to follow and figure out what Johnny is cooking because he not only shows you what he's cooking, but how to do it well. Yeah, I didn't know you had a food pastor blog. Oh, now man. I'm very Johnny's intrigued. a man of many talents. <laughs> I knew that part. Thank you for listening to the Reimagining Faith podcast. This podcast is made possible by our incredible patrons at Patreon. You can check out all the available perks at patreon.com slash reimaginingfaith. Nicole and I are so grateful to be on this journey with all of you. May the God of impossible things fill you with hope for a better tomorrow, and may you go forth to make it so.